Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today's interview might be the most pirate one yet, but I'll leave you to be the judge of that. I'm delighted to have with me Steve Chapman, an artist, coach, writer, speaker and sort of podcaster. The more accurate way to describe Steve's work is that he does projects that are experiments in the opposite of what is normal. He spends his time fully inhabiting the edges, and he works with a range of organisations and individuals to help them do the same. The results are very interesting, and if by the end of this conversation you are as intrigued by Steve's work as I am, he's actually exhibiting some of his artwork in Soho from the 16th to the 21st of November. So if you're based in London, do come down and check it out. Otherwise, I really hope that you enjoy this chat. I was wondering if you remembered this. It's been two years since we met at Basecamp. Yeah, because I saw a note from Chris from Basecamp saying two years ago it was Basecamp London. Yeah, it was, yeah. And first of all, I thought, well, it wasn't actually in London, but um, (laughs) I knew what he meant. So yeah, two years. How much has changed since then? Yeah. And that was wonderful because I remember when we did the introductions, I mentioned the silent podcast and you went, ah, Sam was on a silent podcast and then... That was how we made the connection. Yeah. Yes, yes. (laughs) We'll We'll get to Sound of Silence later, I think. Well, I remember it because I talked to Chris about the concept of the conference ahead of time. Sam and I had a bit of a chat with him and about the diversity of the conference. And if we're going to talk about solving big problems, how are we going to ensure that you get different perspectives on it? And I'm not going to take credit for how he came up with the idea of having an artist on every table or anything like that. But I think that was definitely part of that attempt to make it different. But I think that, if I'm honest, that that's all failed. <laughs> At least I feel like it failed. I don't know. You, you have you have thoughts on success and failure anyway. But <laughs> So that's brilliant to hear the origin to that, because I think that that's really important. But there's a thing that is almost the artist or those that think differently. I'm interested in this from a neurodiversity perspective as well. Have to work so much harder to even get in there because we operate in strange ways. I've seen a couple of things before. I went to a thing in Copenhagen, which was the arts and the business coming together. And this is an overgeneralization, but the artists were all running around thinking, how can we get you to pay us lots of money? And the businesses were thinking, teach us how to do it in three easy steps. And it was just a complete mismatch in philosophies. And it was everyone was just getting annoyed with each other. Yeah, you're approaching it from completely different places. I did think that at the base camp, we did get a variety of different interpretations of how to present a problem or whatever you talked about in the group. So that was quite nice. I think our group sort of failed because it was so majority people who like problem solving and talking. We really wanted to get into the debate about what we were talking about. And you were just like, I'll be over here in the tent of not knowing. I mean, I left my group. Yeah. I was just sitting there thinking there's something missing in this. Of course, I completely forgot we were in the same group. And mm. I thought that was the intervention that was needed for me. And the tent of not knowing, I loved that. It was one of my favourite things. You were like, if anyone wants to join me for a walk to think about this, that's what I'll be doing. And I remember thinking, I want to do that, but I feel some sort of obligation to glue the group together around the thing we're talking about. <laughs> 
And I also remember <laughs> thinking that jo- really judging it as a success or a failure, which again, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't do as much now, but that was sort of two years ago. What I really appreciated about being the artist in residence is that gave me permission to not do what you did, which I normally would have done. Mm. It's almost like the label gave me license to go, I'm just going to go over here and do this weird stuff now. And I also think I've got more like that with age. I just can't be bothered to do stuff I don't want to do anymore. Maybe people have been like that all the time. But it's taken me years to do that. To think, no, I don't want to do that. It sounds boring or dull or uninteresting or we're going around in circles or we're just in a massive echo chamber. It was a good experience. Ashridge, it's become less of a special place, but because I studied there and I was faculty there, that was nice to go back to Ashridge. Really? I did Masters in Organisational Consulting, which is a bit of a misnamed thing. It really was a Masters in Culture, and it was taught in a brilliant way. So I studied there for two years and become faculty on that programme until it got extinguished because it was a thorn in the side of the institution. And then I I'm still visit there on the Coaching Masters programme. So I go in for a day on the second year to sort of disrupt thinking around coaching. Mm. I hated it when I was first there because I left school and went straight into work. I didn't go to university. And so I just felt really out of place. It's like Hogwarts, isn't it? All the rooms have got these very academic sounding names and people were walking around looking very academic. And I was there on the first day just thinking, I feel sick. I really shouldn't be here. The first assignment that I wrote at Ashridge was such academic bullshit. Because I thought that's how you had to write. And it was, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote it in that voice. And so-and-so says this and this. And I got the feedback saying, this is all very clever, but I can't see you in it. This type of writing doesn't work on this program. And that devastated me because I put so much work into that assignment. But it was perfect feedback. Because then I realized is what they were valuing was, what is my perspective? What is my unique synthesis of all of this stuff presented in a way that's obviously grounded in academia? That shifted everything for me. I can't operate in that other model. I experienced school just as a memory test I wasn't very good at. You could get art wrong. I mean, what's that about? I remember in the mock exams, the art teacher telling the girl sitting next to me, he'd drawn a picture of Matt Goss from Bross, which shows how how old I am. And she just really enjoyed doing it. And he walked past and went, that's a waste of charcoal. How can you say that? I was thinking about this in relation to your thoughts on art and art and being good and bad. And obviously... If someone drew Picasso today, people are going, well, what's that? But revered as one of the world's greatest artists. And yet the judgment of art should be, do people enjoy it or do they not? But then all of that is socialised, isn't it? I remember being dragged into art galleries and told that this is excellent. I'm thinking, I'm so bored, I can't wait till I can get out of here. That's what the meaning is. And it took me years to do that. The meaning of art is in the response it evokes in you. So the purpose of that art was boredom for you. So how can that be universal? If that were true, we'd all like the same films. There'd be one human film and one human song that we'd all love. We wouldn't need any more. And it can become so elitist. I did the solo exhibition in Gosport. It was brilliant because Gosport is quite a poor forgotten town on the south coast, underinvested, lives in the shadow of Portsmouth. And I was doing this weird and wonderful art exhibition. What was brilliant about it was... All sorts of people would come in. And there was one day I was in the gallery on my own and then there was these three lads outside, quite rough looking lads I judged them as, and they were fighting and swearing. Then one of them went, let's go in that gallery. And I was sitting in there and being from Tottenham in North London, I'm suspicious of everyone. And they came in, I thought, oh, here we go. And they came in and they went, oh, this is really good, actually. And they were saying stuff like, is this this what art galleries are like? And things like that. And it was, well, no, not always. And I said, oh, I quite like this stuff. I might go in more galleries. That's not to say that my work is universally appealing, but I think because it was unusual and it probably wouldn't exist in a normal gallery, it reframed what galleries were. I was chatting with the gallery owner down there and he said that a lot of people are intimidated at the thought of going into a gallery because they think it's intellectual. And I trained with Keith Johnson, who's one of the originators of theatrical improv, sort of like a legend, a godfather. He's in his 80s now. When he put on a play, he'd serve popcorn. And he said the main reason that he'd serve popcorn is people would walk in and think, this doesn't smell intellectual. And then they could just enjoy the play. And I think the same's needed in the art world as well. Do you know, I think my brother did an essay once on something to do with like smell associations in cinema and the whole experience being defined by so many other sensory things and that you would, yeah, of course, associate popcorn with cinema and that being a lower brow experience. Hmm. Imagine walking into the opera, not that I've ever been to the opera, and it's smelling of popcorn. Or going into like a really 
classic art exhibition and it smells like an old nightclub. It wouldn't be nice, but... <laughs> That's exactly the kind of thinking that I suppose, I hesitate to use the word teach, but help people to find. I think it's just naturally the way my brain works. It's not for any desire or anything. It's just for a curiosity about what's normal and why is that normal? And it's not necessarily normal. It's just socialised, like you said. We've just agreed that this is how things happen. And what would happen if we did something different? You must have had to resist some normalising forces along the way in order to retain that. And my experience has always been the work that I've really enjoyed doing, where we've really achieved something, I'm hesitating to say that word, achieved something, has never been going through the procurement process, pitching for work, going to the board, doing a presentation, getting it signed off, having a plan. It's always been finding one or two people within the organisation that have enough power and influence to start some small-scale experiments that we can seek forgiveness rather than permission. And they've always been the things that work. And so my hope would be that more of those people that can go, I can get you undercover, we can start doing this work, and let's see what happens. And I like working in that way, saying, like, here's a plan, but we know it's not going to work. Let's try something out, see what happens, redesign it, try another experiment. And they're the best thing. So I hope there's more people like that within organisations. Because if everyone just suddenly went out on their own, that probably wouldn't be helpful either. So I don't make neither good or bad. If there's more pirates and subversives in organisations that are finding these guerrilla ways of doing it, that's exciting, I think. Yeah. There's some industries that are more receptive to it than others. Yeah. And I, you know, I immediately thought of the healthcare pirates when you were saying that and and yeah. them trying to really trying to convey in certain settings that the outcomes are emergent and that we yeah. cannot predict ahead of time what will happen as a result of this, but something will certainly shift and change because we are trying a new practice. And that is because it's new, it's inevitable that you'll see change, but we can't guarantee X, Y, Z. And that is just so difficult for people to feel comfortable enough with to be able to put their professional identity, whatever resources they've got on the line for it. That's where I come at this as much as I can with compassion. So I think that this isn't just a person in a business saying, right, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's that thinking, well, I'd really like to do this, but my job's on the line and then I have to feed my family and pay my mortgage. And they're not consciously thinking that, I don't think. But all of that sits under the surface. And that's why I wrote that blog that you referred to was just, I want to send this to people in advance so I don't end up in work where I'm just getting put up for <laughs> getting shamed and rejected. And there's a couple of questions in that that are relevant. One is how long's a piece of string? Was that, okay, we can have a plan, but we don't know what's going to happen. But I think the other really important one that I always ask is, what are you going to do when someone does something you don't like? It's like, we want disruption, we want difference, we want novelty. There's no such thing as a bad idea. Okay, so what are you going to do when someone does something you don't like? Because that's a sign of success. Because I often said this on the master's programme, culture change should, by its very nature, look, smell and feel countercultural. If not, it's more of the same. The fact that you're going, oh, no, I don't like the sound of that, doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea. It could be a good thing. And that's where there's this difference between what organisations... They like thought of it, but not the practice of it. And there's an old Chinese proverb, I think it's Chinese, that I learned ages ago that describes this. And it's the man who loved dragons. Have I told you it before? I read your blog you on this and it? I love it because anything with dragons analogies <laughs> really nice. fits with our pirate metaphors, so yeah. I loved it. <laughs> so I learned this from a Tai Chi teacher years ago. But the man who loved dragons goes like this. So there's a man who loves dragons, and it could be a woman that loves dragons. There's a person that loves dragons. And they love dragons so much that they live in a dragon-shaped house. And it has a dragon-shaped door knocker. And they wear dragon clothes and dragon pyjamas. And at night they dream of dragons. And in the morning they wake up with a dragon alarm clock, brush their teeth with dragon toothpaste, drive to the office in their car emblazoned with dragons and they live in Wales as well because they like the dragon they get to the office their screensaver has a dragon on it they have a dragon tie and then they go home and they have dragon related dinner and go back to bed and dream about dragons so they absolutely love dragons and the queen of dragons hears about this person and says they sound brilliant I love the person that loves dragons let's go and visit them and the queen of dragons flies over to the house and it's easy to spot because it just looks like a dragon and she flies down and she knocks on the door and the man who loved dragons comes to the door and on seeing a real dragon for the first time, screams and runs for the hills, never to come back. So the queen of dragons flies back to her kingdom and says to her learned friend, I'm really upset. I don't know what happened. The man who loved dragons, I thought he'd love me, but he ran off. He was terrified. And her wise friend said, ah, this is a man that loves the idea of dragons, but not dragons themselves. And it's that story is the same of the organisation that loved 
the idea of disruption, the organization that loves the idea of pirates and rebellion. But the moment they really experience that discomfort, that edginess of it, it's far easier to stay the same. This isn't the best way to run a business. I've become so attuned to that that I just don't want to get into that work that's aboutism, that's just whatever equivalent of greenwashing would be an equivalent of that. Whatever the creativity version of greenwashing is, I just can't do it. Yeah, no, completely. And I actually think at the moment I'm hearing a lot of like, <laughs> the, the, the buzzword is like honesty, candor, truth-telling. But then, you know, if we're really going to be truthful about truth-telling, I think it's not always appropriate to tell the absolute truth. You don't want to necessarily be no filter, but it needs a more in-depth conversation about when is it appropriate to tell the truth? How do you tell the truth in a way that isn't, like you say, almost like a compassionate way of doing it. But again, so that you don't end up with this kind of a sloganistic attempt to show integrity when it's not there, really. So yeah, it's exactly the same with yeah the creativity. And it's how do you bring it right down to that individual level? It's when we get like an aggregized goal applied to the other. So we want to make them creative. And it's like, who's them? What do you mean by them? That group. But what about that group? Well, those two people, what about those two people? Now, that person. And once you get down to that individual level, it's like, oh, we can do something now because they've got their own unique perspective on the world, their own unique filters. And it's this illusion that stuff can happen. Human change can happen at scale and be rolled out in the way that you'd maybe roll out a new brand or something, like a new logo or something. You can't do that. I was running a workshop yesterday with a group in, in Birmingham. We spent the entire day just gently shifting the norms of how they interact until the end was doing some really weird stuff and they didn't even notice they were doing weird stuff because it had been so gradual and i was saying to them at the end imagine if i then asked you to roll this out to the rest of your organization you can't do it because there isn't a thing to roll out you, you you can't capture the work we've been doing and roll it out in that way so i think there's this dominant machine mindset doesn't work i'm so glad that you said that i'm so glad because sometimes use the machine mind garden mind right. kind of analogy to help people understand like the shift between old work to what i think will be the future of work but also actually thinking about it maybe there is a way to scale it because in all the chat about how we change our economy from the predominant sort of consumerist one that we have now to what could a regenerative sustainable economy look like and I, I often come back to think that it would be things that you know nurture humans and part of that is personal development stuff coaching all kinds of different practices that we sometimes seen as a part of a quite a niche luxury or maybe self-indulgent industry what if that was scaled at mass and I would see the shift there being we move from management as a concept to coaching more as a concept that's inside every organization so what would it look like if every single human being had a a mental coach type person who was responsible for their personal development so they were supported in order to be in that uncomfortable space so much more could that potentially scale <laughs> i mean i think stuff can spread i think that the trouble with the word scale is we think of it in a very mechanistic way like you'd scale up a machine or you'd scale up a factory process i spent years working in factories and i was trained in lean six sigma so reducing variability reducing steps and i used to say lean six sigma works perfectly on anything that doesn't have a soul on anything that doesn't have human irrationality and the, the trouble was when we apply that really mechanistic thinking to human beings that are irrational emotional have filters we're basically incredibly anxious hairless apes on a ball of rock flying around a nuclear explosion so we're not the most stable of creatures but i think scale can happen in a different way i spent years sort of training in gestalt psychology which is slightly paradoxical because all gestalt is interested in is deepening our awareness of things as they are and paradoxically we get more change by doing that than obsessively goal setting for the future so i think the way that something can scale is if we're focusing on deepening awareness so that awareness gives the individual choice to act and the choice to act is an experiment and i think that's that's a subtle shift but it still is that choice of the individual and i think that's the thing that's missed in the machine thinking if i scale up a widget machine you're not going to get a rebellion from the sensors saying no we don't want to do that or you're not going to get a, a rebellion from one of the pistons saying, oh, I've, I've had enough of being a piston. I want to be a bird or something. And it just doesn't take into account the foibles of being human. So I think stuff scales. I mean, and this is where I, I've loved the work that you and Sam have been doing. If you look at things like the uprisings and rebellions, they're really subtle things that happen 
at that individual level and build up. I remember seeing a talk in Cannes. I can't remember who did it. It was a photographer that was in the Arab Spring. I can't remember which country he was in. I won't guess. And he was saying that the internet was attributed to the uprising of the Arab Spring. He said he was there and it was, but not in the way that people thought because the internet got switched off. So it meant that people were coming out of their house and going, your internet working? No, no, my internet's not working. Let's go to the next street and see, is their internet working? No, yours isn't. Hold on, something must be going on here. Let's go to the next town and see if their internet's working. And that was how, from his experience, it spread. Which is brilliant, isn't it? That's sort of how change happens. Oh my God, I have so many thoughts on this because I study international relations and you do that and you think you're studying the UN and you think you're studying world leaders and to a degree you are but then you get into the narrative that you know i studied a lot of the intifadas that happened in palestine you realize that these human nuances it will just be the kind of coming together of the circumstances of one or two people that creates like this catapult and yeah there's a lot of human narrative underneath what we imagine is to do with global systems and that politics is so much about that rather than perhaps what the popular perception is have you read Blueprint for Revolution? No, I haven't, but I'm making a note of it now, yeah. I've been trying to get him on the podcast for ages. A really fascinating stories from individual humans about how they used countercultural methods to create change in different ways. Yeah. It's really, really good. Very readable. And this is where underpinning everything is my interest in not knowing. I think that's fundamentally what underpins everything, because if we start from that position then it becomes easier to understand why stuff doesn't work. There's an experiment I do. I didn't invent it. But there's a number of us that do it around the world called the chair game. And the chair game is a really simple experiment. Everyone plays it slightly differently. It's like doing a cover version of a song. The way that I play it is a sort of existentialist chair game that has no meaning. And I will often play it with a group because you might have 10 people in a room and within a few minutes, people are realising that meaning, control, certainty, all of that is an illusion. They'll be saying, right, this is what we're going to do. And then within a few seconds, it won't work. Or within a few seconds, they'll do something that's totally irrational and go, why am I doing that? And it's like, these are 10 people in the room doing something that's pointless, that's not at risk. And meaning gets lost and people misunderstand themselves and each other. And then we find irrationality and it's an undeniable thing. And then we think, well, if you try to then apply that at scale to something as, as big as change within an organisation or a country, we can see why it's so complex. But that complexity isn't to be feared. It's to become curious about it. Yeah. So how does the chair game work? The way that I play it is I say the only purpose of the chair game is to play the chair game. If you're playing the chair game, you're fulfilling the purpose. If you're not, you're not fulfilling the purpose. And other people will play it differently. But that, for me, is the important setup. And I often say to people, any other objectives do you experience you have created? Because I've quite clearly said that the only purpose is to play the chair game. And if, say, you've got 10 people, you have 10 chairs, one person standing up, the other nine are sitting in the chair. So there's an empty chair. And it's the job of the person standing up to sit in the empty chair. And it's the job of the other people to stop them sitting in the empty chair. But there's a couple of really important constraints is the person that's walking and trying to sit in the chair can only go at walking pace. They can't speed up or slow down. The people that are sitting in the chairs, they can move at any speed, but once they've got up off a chair, they can't sit back down on that chair until they've sat in another one. And that's it. There's no physical violence. You can't physically impede the person that's walking. Chairs mustn't move. There's a number of different things. That sets up a number of constraints. And then we just play the chair game and the person will walk towards the empty chair just weird stuff happens because we might start the game and then the person will walk and just sit on the empty chair and everyone else is going what happened there <laughs> why didn't we move or you get people running around and getting all confused but the greatest thing in the chair game is i played it once with 90 percent male senior board members very resistant to entertaining ideas that change happened in any way other than mechanistically so we played the chair game with them which I absolutely hated, but that's not the point. He's not to give them a good time. And there was one guy who was getting particularly infuriated because in his head, to win the chair game, he'd equated to the length of time you prevent the walker from sitting down. Now, some people may play it that way. I say that there's no objective. You've just invented that as a sign of success. 
and which sort of says a lot about how agentic and how measurable things are. And this guy got so annoyed that he got a flip chart and he wrote down the rules. Like, this is what we're going to do. So this area here, we're going to call zone A. And then zone A, if he's moving towards that, and then this. And then if you see someone over there, you have to look out and you have to shout. And he went through all of these rules and he's getting so angry. And we sat down, we started playing the chair game. Within 10 seconds, he broke his own rule and he didn't know why. And it was just that moment of him going, all right, I sort of get it now. I don't know why that happened. But my friend Rob Poynton played it sort of at midnight in Spain in the mountains under floodlights with an audience. And if you think the process is more important than the performance, it never ends. It's like I played it with someone the other day and said, oh, no, I've done this before. And it's, what do you mean? It's like, that's like saying, I've been to a party before. I know what that's like. I'm not going to go to another one. Or I've eaten before. Like I said, awareness choice, it starts to deepen our awareness of going, actually, this explains a lot. Yeah, I, I really, I really understand what you mean. The idea of the, the means being the ends to a degree and also working through our forthcoming program that will be for younger pirates. Talking about how you create a code rather than saying, well, this is how you would write a pirate code. The idea that it should even be written is something to tear apart. Maybe what we'll do is you'll have a task to do, maybe the share game. You'll have something to do together. And by doing that, you will understand something about the cultural dynamics between you that exists as is. And so then you can go, okay, well, what worked, what didn't? That's your starting point of saying, what is our culture? What do we think we should have here? And what do we think we shouldn't have? With the view that they will end up at some kind of norm or rules between them, because that is helpful in situations, but with the view that those could always change and adapt and everything. So yeah, I think the practicality of just putting yourself into the moment to do it is absolutely essential. What's lovely about what you just said, it's allowing it to naturally emerge because it will rather than seeking it or mandating it. And I quite often say that in terms of creativity. Don't go looking for ideas. The, the practice is to let go in order that you can hear them whispering to you all the time. There's a guy called Arnie Mindel. He called something similar. He called it quantum flirting. My Chapmanized version of what Mindel says is... It's the difference between me looking out the window and thinking, ah, oh, yes, I've, I'm looking at the tree. I've chosen to look at the tree. Whereas it may be in that moment, I was open to hearing the tree calling for my attention. This is what trying harder to be creative is the one way. And, and I have issues with the word creative as well, but we can't do a podcast about language, but trying harder is just, just be open to it. I'm drawing all the time. I'm making art all the time. And people say, where do the ideas come from? I don't know. They're just, they're just there all the time. So I think that being open to it and what you're describing with the young pirates is interact and be open to what's needed presenting itself. And if it's not, it's because you're not open to it presenting itself. It's because you're seeking it. Relax and let it come to you. It's a different way. It's difficult to exist in the world that way because we're taught and you're measured and assessed as being a mature adult on the opposite. I agree so much wholeheartedly. That's a practice you just have to keep on working at. And I was even thinking as you were saying that, that this podcast, as we're talking now, is almost an example of that because I keep thinking, like, now I should go back to my original questions. I need to ask Steve to explain to the audience who Steve is and what kind of things Steve does rather than allow you to reveal who you are through the means of you just talking about things in the world, which is what you're doing. So I think people will have a sense of who you are and what you do purely through this. And it will sort of come out anyway. Yeah, won't it? Because I was just about to lead into saying this is how some of the projects I do at a later stage, people don't appreciate the early stages. So the Lost Cat poster project, you know about that one? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous where that project's gone to. It costs me money. I don't make money from it. And it's, it took over my life for about two months. But that started when I was walking my dog. I was walking my dog in the woods. And in the distance, I saw a poster that just it looked like some cat on a poster. And I saw it out of the corner of my eye. And it was slightly out of my way. I was thinking, I can't be bothered to walk over there. I mean, it, it would have been... 30 seconds out of my way but you know what we're like as, as well, what I'm like anyway it's like nah and it was just I just thought no it's it's calling me for some reason and so I walked over to it and had a look and it was sad it's someone had lost their cat but it had a really weird picture of a cat on it well it was a beautiful cat it's just like it looked like a mountain lion with big ears and it was slightly boss-eyed and the thing that captured my imagination was how majestic the cat was but also at the bottom of the poster it said, take a photo of this poster to keep on your phone and share with your friends. And this is one of the gifts of a dyslexic monkey mind. Your imagination runs off with that. And I think, well, maybe the cat's not lost. Maybe the owner just wants his cat to go viral because he's so proud of it. 
And so I, when I got home, I painted a picture of the cat and I made a fake lost cat poster that said, this isn't a lost cat poster. I don't have a cat. I just wanted to show you my painting. And I put them up in London and lots of people said, can I have one? And so I started sending them to people. And to cut a long story short, they're now in 45 countries, over two and a half thousand posters, nearly on every continent. And there's one that I'm waiting to get the photos back from Antarctica from. And it's sort of become a, a physical viral thing. But the point of that story was that quantum flirt when walking my dog. At the corner of my eye, seeing just for some reason that poster caught my attention and me moving towards that thinking, this is calling me for some reason. And that project came from there. So people ask, so Lost Cat Posters project's brilliant. And it came from that moment of being open to the world flirting with my imagination. And how many hours do you think people put in thinking about how to make something get into 45 countries? and like go viral and all of that yeah and it's 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 a constant battle because it's less of a battle now but it would there'd be points with a lost cat poster where i'd literally spend a day packing envelopes of lost cat posters from eight in the morning to eight p.m and i'm handwriting the envelopes because i like i like doing that i'm sending them out and after a while i started charging for them because it's costing me too much money but just to break even this not for profit there's the logical adult part of me going right end it now that's enough you had your fun do some sensible stuff, earn some money. But then there's the other part of me going, no, 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 this is, this is just starting. And I think it's almost got to the point where that adult version is just going, oh, here we go again. There's nothing I can do about it. I'll just let him get on with it. I couldn't have planned the Lost Cat project. I don't know anything about marketing. <laughs> I know nothing about it. I don't know how to do these things. But I think that's the thing is I have an intention in my projects, but not an objective. So my intention was, I wonder what would happen if I did this. And then the project can take me where it wants to go. And it's going to take me places that I never would have taken it had I been in charge. So my job with a project like that, same with Sound of Silence, same with all the other things, has been how do I just give it what it needs? How do I give it the nutrients and the love and the, the little nudges that it needs to lead me off? Can you ever really go wrong when you work in that method? Because as you say, like the thrill that you must have of this lost cat, even if it's costing you money, because I have that with a lot of the pirate stuff. I think, oh, this is not commercially sensible or anything. But my God, it's fascinating. And it feels like adventure. And that feels like the right thing for this brand. So therefore, I will go down that rabbit hole. I did a workshop with a corporation in Birmingham yesterday that paid me some money that I needed. I got more joy yesterday from getting a photo of a lost cat poster in Wuhan, the first one in China. And it was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Why am I so excited about this? And that one, the person didn't have any money, so I sent it to them for free. So it cost me about like five in postage. And it took three months to get there. But just seeing that photo of the lost cat in Wuhan, it's like, my God, this is the best thing ever. Yeah, it sounds like you can relate to that. In reading some of your writings and blogs and things and thinking about, you know, coming from the concept of the sound of silence, which as you've described it, is about provocative absence. So when you create something that is almost the opposite of what it's meant to be. So for those who don't know what sound of silence is, is Steve's podcast, which is two minutes of silence with the guests. He introduces them and then they sit in silence for two minutes, which also, by the way, when I was listening to some of them, I was thinking, well, I listened to Sam's and Sam's you do outside the British Museum and it's a bit noisy as the silence goes. And I thought, well, why am I unsurprised that Sam's silence is a bit noisy? <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering whether there's a correlation between the guests and their, the quality of their silence. But just to get into this idea of provocative absence or what you've called the fertile void, which I think is also a great phrase. You've got some great phrases, Steve. Fertile void isn't mine, I have to confess. That's a gestalt phrase, but yeah. Then, weirdly, on Saturday night, I was in a bar and I met this guy who was telling me that he had created a museum in London that doesn't exist. He'd put it on TripAdvisor, created a whole thing around it, doesn't exist, and just gotten loads of good reviews. And he was like, we've just won some kind of a TripAdvisor award for this. And I was like, seriously? And I can't remember the name of it. So basically, this morning, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to Google this museum to find out if his story was true. But in doing so, I went down a rabbit hole of all the museums in London that possibly existed and which weird and wonderful ones were there. And I came across some gems that I thought really spoke to the idea of the, the provocative absence and things. But also just to say that almost you've given me permission to 
not think, oh, what, what else is on my to-do list that I should be doing instead of going down this rabbit hole and looking at the trust advisor page for every single one of the 454 museums in London. Came across the Genuine Treasures Museum, which is a, looks like a cross between a voodoo museum and a charity shop. The Underdog, which has no photo, no nothing. And not the Royal Academy, which is also a kind of absence. It's for all the paintings that don't go into the Royal Academy. So it's like a kind of alternative to that. But yeah, I, I don't know where that was going. This, it's not going no, anywhere. That's, other that, than that's th- thank you for letting me indulge in that. a brilliant rabbit hole to go down. Because <laughs> you never know, you never know when that will provoke something else and what that's going to lead to, will you? Yeah, I could sense that, that somehow, in some way, that this was a valuable thing to do. Yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're the accidents. We, we'll get back to your original question about Sound of Silence, because I love going off on tangents. But I try and log where the tangent left off from. Because I did an exhibition in Gosport, I was tweeting a lot about getting the ferry. So getting the ferry over from, from Portsmouth to Gosport. And my friend Nick Parker said something about a ferry gallery or something, or a ferry museum. So I googled, is there a ferry museum or a ferry gallery? And I found the one of the weirdest, strangest places in the world. It's in America. And it's called the Something Ferry Museum or Gallery. And it's just lots of very strange religious artifacts next to these soldiers that are placed really weirdly like model soldiers dolls heads and then like an island of lettuce with legs sticking out i would never have found that hadn't followed that thread again it's an accidental thing i didn't go seeking it sound of silence happened because i was just about to go for a run and i saw a tweet advertising some Leadership Hacks podcast. It must have been on LinkedIn or something like that. It was just a marketing thing for someone. It's saying, here's the 10 secrets that the top leaders don't want you to know. And I just thought, oh, I'm not anti-podcast, obviously. I'm on one now. But it was what I was thinking is there's, there's so many podcasts that don't have anything to say that it's just the, all right, I should probably do a podcast. Like, I should probably get married. I should probably get a job. I should probably do a podcast. And so when I was running, I was just running thinking, oh, this is all a bit shit. I wonder what the opposite of a podcast would be. Like these people have got nothing to say. So what would the opposite be? It would be it would be nothing. It'd be a downloadable pause. Just broadcast nothing. And then obviously you get memories of John Cage's four minutes thirty-three. And I thought, yeah, it could be a silent podcast, but what would make it weirder is if we had special guests. And it's all recorded face to face with special guests. And then I got home and one of the mantras in my work, and I have to do it less now because I got into the habit of it, is to leap then look or to start before I'm ready. Because if I'd left it more than a day, I would have talked myself out of doing a silent podcast. So I registered the domain, Sound of Silence, which was a working title. It was never meant to be the title. And then announced to everyone on social media, I'm going to do this. And even though I don't think people would have complained had I not done it, it was like a commitment. And then it went from there. But again, if I'd not looked at LinkedIn just before going for a run, it would never have happened. But it was from that that this concept of provocative absence sort of started to present itself to me. And I realised it's present in a lot of my projects. And the Lost Cat project, there is no point to it. It isn't that it's advertising cat food or you join a club. There is no point to it. It's not even that it's making me money. But in Sound of Silence, what was happening was, I mean, obviously loads of people thought it was ridiculous and stupid, which is also a, a provocation, isn't it? Obviously, I'd like people to like the stuff I do, but it's worse if they're like, nah, if they're indifferent to it, so long as it provokes something. But people would write to me about Sound of Silence and say, oh, I, I love this podcast. It's about meditation, or it's about peace, or it's about the noise in society, or it's about anxiety. I realised that because there's nothing in it, people can pour into it whatever they want. It was that shift. So there's the absence of content in a content-addicted society that was provocative. But also you do write about the sound of silence, I think, on a blog that does sort of say that actually silence is never really silence. Again, it's a problem with language. We imagine that silence is some kind of fixed and neutral term in the way that we observe the word and see silence. Silence, I understand that. Silence equals the absence of sound. But actually silence occurs in so many different contexts. I think you say, you know, what is silence in a cathedral is different to silence in front of a huge crowd of people compared to silence on your own. There is qualities of it. Absolutely. There's a difference, I think I wrote in that blog, that was the 60 Shades of Silence blog, which uh, was just obviously a play on words. I'm not suggesting there is 60. But it was good because people read it thinking, I'm going to learn the 60 Shades. And it's like, there aren't. That's just play on words. There's a difference between the human experience of silence and then 
I started writing a book about Sound of Silence, but I got bored of it, so I didn't finish it. But the first chapter was called Two Seconds Before the Big Bang. And I might come back to it someday or someone can write it for me. But it was that point of if we believe that way that the universe was created, two seconds before the Big Bang, neither silence nor sound existed. There's nothing. The moment that sound is invented, I don't know if you, you even get sound in space, do you? I don't think sound can exist in a vacuum. I don't know. That idea that that concept of silence, which is really the concept of not knowing, is the backdrop to everything. The only thing we can be curious about is our human experience of it. And I guess the biological thing of silence is vibration detected by an ear. There never is that silence. I was really stressed out with Sam's one because I had a cold. I'd not seen Sam for a couple of years and it was the first episode and the first recording. And we went to the British Museum and we sat outside and it was so noisy out there. And I thought, this is rubbish. <laughs> this isn't why. Maybe I'm going to have to get a recording studio. But it was really helpful because I thought, well, I'm not trying to record silence. I'm recording our experience of silence, the silence that is between Sam and I at this point in time. And obviously you can't record that, which is sort of the point. But it will allow people to project into it. I tried to find quiet places to record them. I wouldn't like, record them in the middle of a noisy pub or something. But that became part of it. And it's like this one I recorded in an underground medieval prison cell in Nottingham. You can hear hardly anything there. But I also think you are doing something here. And this speaks not just to Sound of Silence, but to, you know, the idea of you having the inexpert conference that you did, where you have a conference that is not full of expert speakers, but you had some speakers, but they were definitely not experts or positioned as experts in any way. And we have a lot of conversations about this in the pirate community because, you know, such a deluge of expert-laden conferences, of which I am sometimes part of them. But really, you know, when we always go back to it, we think the point of bringing a group of humans together in a space is actually connection. That that should be the, f the first and foremost outcome, because you actually get a lot more done from that point, usually, rather than a knowledge-based exchange where ultimately, now these days, you can read anything on the internet it's nice to have the person there saying it because actually for the point of connection and even when you're doing sound of silence you're you're creating connection with the guests even if <laughs> you do it in that medium of silence maybe that's enough you know maybe you don't have to say anything to each other yeah i mean it, it, there still is the process of relating there isn't there and there's a whole wonderful world beyond words that exists imagine if you're standing on the edge of a cliff watching a beautiful sunset do you need words to fully experience that I'd argue you don't. So you're experiencing not only the senses, but you're experiencing this sunset. We only really need words if we need to write about it or articulate it to someone else. So words can be useful. But there's that entire experience exists beyond it. Even in those moments of silence, there still is so much meaning there. But again, it's that domination of words that can be really hindering. What was lovely about an expert and my experiment there was what would happen if I did a conference that was the opposite of TED. Now, again, I don't have anything against TED, although it's become a bit of a cult of TED. And it came because I did TEDx in, I don't know, 2016. And then everyone thought I was really clever because I'd stood on a red spot. And it's, it really shouldn't make any difference. Yeah. The fact that you stand on a red spot under a particular brand doesn't mean anything really and i was thinking there's something about this cult of ted that's potentially unhelpful so an expert was 16 speakers brilliant speakers who gave talks on subjects they were interested in but had no expertise in whatsoever it was not for profit sold out theater of 100 seats we had an expert art exhibition of art that had gone wrong in the foyer city lit theater hadn't done a thing like this before so they weren't quite sure I had someone that never operated a video camera filmed it. My friend Nick Parker played the trumpet for us for all the music because he'd been learning to play the trumpet for just six weeks. So everything about it was right on that edge. And I think there's a really important thing here that there's boring normal, but then there's gimmick. And I, and I didn't want this to collapse into gimmick. So this is a, it's a proper social experiment. And I still can't describe it. And it's like three years, four years later. But lots of people wrote articles about it. And what was in all of those articles was it was an indescribable experience of being human together. Because there wasn't anything to learn. There wasn't a, like the people on stage have the answer that I need to get because I'm deficient in some way. Everyone experienced that confusion and that I don't quite know what this is. Because it was not for profit, 
there wasn't any ulterior motive in it. And I think those little experiments, they start to reveal some of what you're talking about there. It starts to say, actually, what is, what is this human experience? What, what is this about? I'd never go through a podcast without saying this, really, but I've got a Nietzsche quote on my wall because it really sums up my philosophy and all of this. Um, what sums up my philosophy is Nietzsche's philosophy. Because again, it gets through that, that away from just weirdness for the sake of weirdness, which I really, I really don't like. I find it too cheesy and too, too corny. But Nietzsche says, learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. So learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. And that's why I'm interested in the weird and the wonky and the unusual and the counterpoint. Because if we don't resist it, if we move towards confusion and dissonance and not knowing, it generates wonder. It only doesn't generate wonder if we resist it. And I think that's maybe why children... And we can glorify children as being these amazing creative beings, perhaps a bit too much as adults. But maybe that's why children naturally do it, because the world is a weird place. I read half of another book called um, Teaching Quantum Physics to Dogs, because um, I just like the title of it. And I'm interested in quantum physics and I like dogs and, and it still can understand it. But I like the premise of the book. It said to a dog, every moment is confusing. Every moment is like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to work it out. And so it said a dog is perfectly predisposed to understand quantum physics because the world is perpetually confusing and changing and shifting. And I love that. So I try and stay in a state of being on the edge of not knowing. Even in artwork, I, I like to work with materials that I don't really know how to use. But it's right on that edge. Yeah, you are definitely not alone on this podcast from the pirates saying that. Um, I think the skill is just in continually giving yourself permission and, and resisting and being able to, to do that. What you said about Ted, and because, you know, I, I definitely know also as soon as you, as soon as you're in the space of the expertise, you see underneath the surface and you go, oh, well, if I'm here, it's not, it's not that real anyway. Yeah, and, yeah. and, <laughs> and also, and also that it's just, you know, it's just humans. Obviously there are certain places where really serious expertise is required and knowledge. What I'm interested in is rebalancing stuff that's become too biased one way so the wrong conclusion to draw from what i'm saying would be let's get rid of all ted's all talks like that and it's like no 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 they serve a purpose and they're of value and there can stuff exist alongside that it's almost like there was indivisible between the audience and the speakers there was one point where someone in the audience felt so awkward for the speaker they got up and hugged them <laughs> because it was that intense but I think that's the thing is how do we balance it? And that's my interest in the role of the outsider in society. Alongside those with expertise, it's, it's so important to have those with inexpertise. I make the definition of the person has to be interested or passionate about something. It's not just going, oh, I don't care. I don't care about salmon farming, so I'm just going to show up. There's got to be an interest in it as well and that's the thing it's that's why i love the world of outsider art the untrained outside of the art institution artists that just make art because it helps them make sense of the world they do stuff in ways that a trained painter never would it's a similar thing elsewhere and i was gonna say you know just a point about your art i'm trying to say this in a way that maybe doesn't because I'm, I'm just concerned it's going to come across as um not as complimentary as it's meant but it's sort of like on the edge of funny <laughs> like, right, yeah. it, it, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like you, you're not going for the obvious joke, maybe. But I can so see how it's almost like just so bespoke that it will hit some people's sense of humour so bullseye that it's almost like it's almost only meant for them. I think you're absolutely right. I'm not setting out to be a cartoonist or, or anything like that. I'm not trying to make people laugh with it. But I think it is that. I mean, I've got hundreds of them here that I need to scan in and put on Instagram, which won't work on the podcast. I'll just start making a mark about something and then explore it so the gospel thing was my first solo exhibition with loads of stuff then there's the london one as well which is just going to be drawings but that's exactly what people said is they'd go around and there's so much stuff in it and i said to the gallery curator i want it there to be too much i want it to be confusing that there's not a theme but it meant that people would find one thing and go actually that really makes sense to me or that makes me laugh or that makes me think i like that description that you've had it's sort of on the edge of fun it's like i don't know if this should make me 
laugh or make me contemplate existence or whether it should make me angry. Do I actually like it or not? I don't know. If that's the response, then brilliant. I love that. That kind of is. That kind of yeah. kind of is what it what it does. And then occasionally you go on like, and you're like, like yes. Like with the project, I don't have an intention with it. It's like Instagram's a window that people can look in and see what I'm up to. I don't create anything for Instagram. I can't be bothered. The same sound of silence. If it provokes something in you, then great. I have one final question to ask because it was actually at the top of my list of questions, which I've completely failed to do. We just play the podcast backwards. Yeah, maybe. I was thinking Steve's given me a permission slip to do a podcast that isn't like our normal podcast. What would that look like? Can I ask him loads of weird questions like, you know, would squirrels make good pets? I was thinking about that this morning in the park. I was like, God, would they? Are they better pets than cats? Like legitimately. Anyway, that wasn't the question. The question was, what is thingification? Because you mentioned that on your on your website. And I was like, what does that mean? So thingification is a term. I think I came up with it, but I may not have done. I don't know. It's a term that I started to use to describe one of the biggest problems when it comes to culture change or organisational change is treating amorphous, intangible processes as if they were things. And our language is littered with it. So organisations will say, I want to pull the levers of change. We need to move the organisation from here to here. And I say, well, okay, show me where it is and I'll help you lift it. That thingification or the reification would be the dictionary word for it, is to give concrete characteristics to something that isn't concrete, which we do because it reduces our anxiety. It makes things seem a bit more certain. It makes us feel more in control. And it can be helpful. And thingification comes from the brilliant jazz musician and professor of management bizarrely has those two roles called frank barrett he says human beings have a habit of turning metaphor into geometry and thinking it's real that's the thing so this idea of the levers of change is a helpful metaphor to think about change but it's not real what barrett is saying is we make those metaphors real so thingification is just describing that it's alfred north whitehead called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness when I've got into the habit of be suspicious of anything that appears too concrete for me. So that's what I mean by thingification. Is it a real thing? Can you pick it up? Does it have density and things like that? And people will say, of course, my organisation's a real thing. It's, well, show it to me. And they'll show me some things from their organisation, like a building. Is that it then? If I had that, have I got your whole organisation? Because the thing they're talking about, this isn't a thing, is that moment-by-moment spontaneous human interaction with each other. This has been really fascinating for me and I really think it will bring so much benefit to our podcast audience. So thank you very much for the time. And of course, I will say at the end of this, this episode is going to air happily the week of your exhibition starting in Soho. Yes. If you want to tap into Steve's creativity, go and visit his exhibition. Which has, is such a complicated artsy title. It's called 47 Drawings by Steve Zor. <laughs> because there's 47 drawings in it and it's like okay there you go thank you so much for having me it's um i think the the work that you and sam are doing and the way that i see the world is a lovely symbiosis there thank you for tuning in today our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realize that the way things are is not the way they have to be and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown if you like what you heard then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at BeMorePirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit BeMorePirate.com. See you next time.